You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Six through nine, and then we'll pray together before we begin. Philippians four, verse six: Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Bow our heads together. Our Father, we come now to your word and we cry out to you for help in understanding it, in teaching it, in listening to it, and of course in obeying it. We ask, Father, that you speak to our hearts this morning through this text of Scripture to the praise of your glorious grace and that you might edify us and equip us and encourage us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the last couple of weeks, we've been discussing the subject of anxiety from Philippians chapter 4. And last Sunday after the service, somebody came up to me and offered what I thought was a very profound observation. I wanted to share it with you because I thought it was so good. It was something that I had never thought of. And the person who shared it with me was Andrea Kinney. And I asked her if I had permission to relay this to you and share this. And she said I could. And then John quickly clarified it and said if the sermon ever makes money, he wants royalties off of this observation. And since no sermon I have ever preached has ever created a dime of revenue, I feel rather safe to say that I'm not going to owe him any money for sharing this. But this is a particularly poignant illustration or observation because most of you who are here remember what the Kinney family was going through at this time last year. On October 30th of last year, their second son, Ian Daniel, was born with trisomy 13, a severe birth defect. They brought Ian home on Thanksgiving Day. And by December 19th, Ian had gone to be with the Lord. And here was Andrea's observation. She said, in the midst of worrying and in the midst of anxiety, when your mind is churning over all of the possible scenarios of everything that could go wrong, and you're looking forward to what you're expecting that you're going to have to endure, and you're worrying about it, she said, the Lord is never present in the imagination. You go through all the scenarios in your mind and all of the equations that you're working out and what you're imagining that you might have to face or maybe will face or could possibly face. Always in the imagination, the Lord never comes into the equation. The Lord is not present there. He can't be because He's not a very present help in the time of your overactive imagination. He's a very present help in time of actual need. So when you're imagining a scenario that you may have to face, Always the Lord is absent from the equation, isn't He? But, she said, when you actually go through it, 
It's much different than anything you ever imagined because the Lord is right there with you in the midst of all of the difficulties. So when you're imagining a horrible scenario that you may have to face, the Lord is never present there in the imagination. And you're thinking it through and you're living it through. And in your mind, you're living through a scenario in which God is not active in the details. But then if you ever have to go through them, and sometimes we do, it's much different because the Lord is right there in the midst of it, and it's never as bad as we actually imagine it. Because there is a grace that is available when you actually have to live it. That I thought it was a profound observation simply because I didn't think, I didn't come up with that. I think simply because I've never had to endure anything like what they had to endure. I think that's why it never occurred to me. So we're switching gears this morning ever so slightly. We're still talking about anxiety, but from a little bit of a different perspective. Somebody came up to me this morning and said, are you done talking about worry yet? And I said, well, almost, kind of. It'll be this week and probably next week before we're really done with that as a subject. But we're talking about not so much anxiety today. The last few weeks we've talked about the wrong use of our minds, which is worrying and being anxious. Today we're talking about something different, the flip side, and that is the right use of our minds. And that's what Paul gives us in Philippians 4, verse 8. Those are familiar words to you, I'm sure. If you've memorized any words in Philippians chapter 4, any verses in Philippians chapter 4, probably verse 8. Right? These things you're supposed to think on, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, etc. And probably verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because every Christian boxer in the world puts that across the back of his trunks as if that's what that phrase has anything to do with. Philippians chapter 4 is oftentimes isolated from its context and we quote that as if, okay, this is, this is sort of a standalone idea, but it's not a standalone idea. In fact, I ran across one commentator who said verse 8 and verse 9 are there are totally unrelated to what has preceded it. There's no logical connection between the use of the mind given to us in verse 8 and what has preceded it. And I would respectfully disagree with that. I think there's not only a logical connection, there is a patently obvious connection between what's in verses 8 and 9 and what has come before it in verses 4 through 7. What's the connection? Well, you'll notice at the end of verse 7 that the Apostle Paul says that the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. Then you look down at the end of verse 9, and Paul talks about the God of peace being with you. So peace is clearly a theme that's all the way through the passage. The Apostle Paul is not done with the subject of peace and what it does to us and for us. Further, there is the connection of God being near. Up in verse 5, the Apostle Paul says the Lord is near. Down at the end of verse 9, he speaks of the God of peace being with us, a nearness to us. There's a similarity in theme there. There's also the very logical connection of the use of the mind. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And the God of peace will guard your hearts and guard your minds. And then verse 8 picks up with that theme of guarding your mind. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is honorable, these are the things you should think of. So I think there's an obvious connection there. Don't you see it? The peace of God is as if Paul is saying, yes, the peace of God will guard your minds, But speaking of that, here are the things that your mind should be active on. These are the things that your mind should be thinking about. So in verse 7 and verse 6, we have what our minds should not be doing. And God will guard our minds. But that doesn't mean that we can't do don't need to do anything because verse 8 and verse 9 give us the things that our minds should be active about. Now, you'll notice in verse 8, and I want you to just read it over again. Verse 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, 
dwell on these things. Now, the verse is a little backwards from our from the way we speak in English. Usually we speak in English, we put the command up front and then the direct object or the verb is close to the beginning of the sentence and then the direct object follows. But Paul does just the opposite. He gives us a list of six ethical or moral or spiritual qualities. Then he gives us two of them and you see them notice, you see them listed there, the first six, whatever is true and the rest of those follow. Then he gives us two sort of category headings that sum up the previous six. And then at the end of the verse, then we're told, think or dwell on these things. So it's a little bit backwards. So we're going to look at those six things that you and I are to think about. Not this morning, but next week. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of the mind. The importance of the mind and the centrality of the mind. So before I tell you what it is that is supposed to occupy your mind, I want to remind you about why the mind is so essential to your Christian walk. And what the Bible says about the mind. Talk about what it is and why it's important. The Bible describes two minds. There is the unredeemed, unregenerate, unsaved, unenlightened mind. And there is the mind that is redeemed, enlightened, delivered, and unenslaved mind. So we have the unredeemed mind and the redeemed mind. Now, before you were saved, you didn't have a redeemed mind. You had an unredeemed mind. You had a mind that the Bible describes as darkened and depraved, etc. The irony of it is that it is not until we have a redeemed mind that we can actually understand all the implications of the unredeemed mind. When I was an unbeliever, I had no idea what condition my mind was in. I had no idea what God thought of my thinking, my thinking processes, my intellect, my understanding, or any of that. not until after I got saved and after I got a redeemed mind that I look back and I look at Scripture and say, yep, that described me. That describes me before I was saved. What does the Bible say about the unredeemed mind? Well, you can start in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, where the Apostle Paul says that the Gentiles are darkened. And by Gentiles, he doesn't mean just non-Jews. He means it's a, a term that is sort of used as a category term to describe unbelievers or pagans. They are darkened in their understanding. Darkened. There's darkness in their intellect. There's no light in their understanding. They're dark in their understanding. They can't understand light. They can't appreciate light. They don't love light. They hate light because everything in them is darkness. Everything in their mind is darkness. And there's no light in them because they're children of darkness in a kingdom of darkness ruled over by the God of darkness. So there's no light there. Paul goes on to describe them as being futile in their imaginations. They're empty, unregenerate, unholy, vain, empty, futile in their thinking and in their understanding. Further, the Bible describes the mind of the unregenerate person as being depraved. Paul refers to false teachers in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, as men of depraved mind. He describes unbelievers in 1 Timothy chapter 6 as depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Romans chapter 1 says all of lost humanity has been given over to a depraved mind. The mind is depraved. Further, the mind is actually in bondage to sin. And it's hostile to God. You could read Romans chapter 8 and find out that the fleshly mind or the carnal mind is set on the things of the flesh and it is not spiritual. It does not love spiritual things. It hates spiritual things. It cannot subject itself to the law of God because it is not able to do so. The unredeemed fleshly carnal mind is not able to think or to do anything that is pleasing to God in any way. It lacks the ability to do that. It cannot please God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says the unredeemed, unsaved, depraved, defiled mind is unable to accept or access 
assessed spiritual things. Doesn't understand spiritual things. Doesn't understand spiritual truth. There's no ability, there's no light in it to accept or to receive or to assess or to understand any spiritual thing. And it's not able to do anything that pleases to God. It's not able to subject itself to the law of God. It's not able to do anything good or redeemable or redeeming because it's futile and it's darkened. And the Bible says that it's also defiled. Titus chapter 1. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And then on top of all of that, it's in bondage to sin, it's hardened, it's bound up in foolishness, it is ignorant. Now all of that describes you before you were a believer. And what is amazing is that description also describes even the world's most brilliant thinkers. Carl Sagan, Stephen Hawking, you name the scientist, you name the thinking, the philosopher, the theologian, the, uh, the brilliant genius of any age, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, you name them. From the world's perspective, brilliant men. From the world's perspective, geniuses, towering intellects, great thinkers, great minds, great philosophers, towering, staggering intellects that we all would like to be with. But from God's perspective, it's everything I've just described to you. Even their most noble, even their most redeemable, even their greatest thought is foolish and wickedness and empty and futile, depraved, darkened, defiled before God. That's the unredeemed mind. It's the unredeemed mind. Now, as a believer, that describes what you were. If you're an unbeliever, that describes what you are. Describes what you are. If you're an unbeliever and you're sitting here, your mind and your understanding is darkened. And you cannot understand or assess spiritual things. And listen, you can sit here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, listen to everything that I say, Understand some of the concepts that I'm communicating. Get some of the facts right. You can turn to the page. You can read through the text with us all. Get the idea or the gist of what I'm saying. Even write down the three points of the outline and kind of grasp all of that. But a true understanding of spiritual truth and spiritual realities and all of the implications of it and the application of it and the obedience of it, you cannot understand. And you will not be able to until you bow your knee to the Savior. That's the fact. You're darkened in your understanding. Now, as a believer, what's true of my mind? That's what was true of my mind as an unbeliever. But as a believer, all of a sudden, now I have the capacity to obey God. Now I have the capacity to glorify God with my understanding and my intellect. Now I have the ability to renew my mind by truth and to think those things that are pleasing in God's sight and to do those things with my mind and with my intellect that are pleasing to God in His sight. Now, as a believer, I also have the ability to understand spiritual truth. Before I was a believer, I read the Bible, didn't understand any of it. I understood there was a Daniel, there was a lion's den, there was a creation, all of these things. But the true understanding of biblical truth, I didn't get. Didn't get any of that. Why is that? Because I didn't have the ability to understand spiritual things. Now as a believer, I open up the Bible, I read it, I understand it. Why? Because I went to Bible college? No, because of the Spirit of God living in me. And now I have the spiritual capacity to understand spiritual things. So the Bible addresses all these commands to our minds. You remember Romans 12, verse... Two, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4, Paul says that you may be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Colossians chapter 3, you need to set your mind on things above. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Gird up your minds, prepare your minds, get your minds ready. So the Bible addresses us and how we use our minds. And of course, the text in front of us, Philippians 4, 8, describes the right use of the mind. All of that I have the capacity for now as a believer. 
So having described the mental condition or the understanding, the mind condition of an unbeliever, unregenerate, dark and defiled and depraved, having described now the condition of a believing mind, one who is enlightened, no longer defiled, no longer depraved, but one who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God and has now a whole new mental capacity, let me apply those truths to two very significant areas. First, any philosophy or theology of ministry or approach to evangelism or preaching or teaching or church or worship that does not factor in the key difference between the unbelieving mind and the believing mind is destined to failure. It's destined to failure. The whole seeker-sensitive movement of our age is geared to take spiritual truth and try and communicate it to an unspiritual mind. It's destined, it is doomed to failure. And if you've been watching the news and you've noticed even within the last 12 months that we've had candid admissions from some leaders of spiritually sensitive, seeker-friendly churches who have said what we've been doing for the last 20 years is an utter failure. They've admitted that. We could have told them that. Why? Because the unbelieving, unregenerate mind doesn't understand spiritual things. So what we're told we need to do is take our sermons and strip them of all spiritual content, strip them of the biblical text, and communicate to the unbelievers, because we want as many unbelievers as we can, to pile into our buildings, so we fill our buildings with goats, and then we try to communicate to the goats the pragmatic benefits of biblical concepts without the biblical text, without the biblical God, without any biblical understanding, and without the biblical power to apply them. So you can either... Your church ministry can either be geared toward equipping and edifying the saints or entertaining goats. You're either going to feed sheep or you're going to feed goats, but you're not going to do the same thing with the same content. Why? Because goats do not have the ability to understand spiritual things. And so what you normally have happening is a dumbing down of all spiritual content to try and make it palatable to unspiritual people. And so you're left trying to do one of two things. You're either trying to communicate spiritual truth, namely the Word of God, in a spiritual means, namely preaching and teaching, to spiritual people, that is, the sheep, who have spiritual minds, or you're trying to communicate good, self-help, practical, pragmatic benefit for living, devoid of any biblical text and devoid of the biblical God in order to make it palatable to people who have minds hostile to God, cannot subject themselves to the law of God, they're darkened, depraved, defiled in their understanding, and have no ability to assess spiritual truth whatsoever. And you know what happens in, the, in those contexts where truth is tried to communicate like that? You have sheep that are starving to death. It's an utter failure. Why is it an utter failure? Because modern-day evangelicalism's greatest disaster is the inability to factor in this one essential truth. The unregenerate mind cannot receive spiritual things. And so we opt for the former, and that is to communicate spiritual truth via spiritual means to spiritual people who have spiritual understanding. Second, second application, it should be obvious to us from all that Scripture says about the mind that God is not opposed to the mind. Christianity is not a faith where you shelve your intellect and sort of jump off the cliff into a a darkness of an abyss without any kind of critical thinking. If there's any religion on the face of the planet that elevates teaching and the teacher and preacher and truth and propositional truth and objective truth, it is the Christian faith. Jesus claimed to be the way and the truth. The Bible claims to be the word of truth. The Bible claims to give us propositional truth about God. It is through belief in the truth that we are saved. 
It is through truth that we are sanctified. It is through truth that we grow. It is the truth that is to be preached. It's the truth that is to be loved. And all of that presupposes an ability to understand and to grasp and to apply spiritual truth because truth is elevated in the Christian faith. Now, does that mean that there's no place for emotion? Should we have emotions? Some of us are more emotional than others. Some of you like to hug and you get all emotional, and I think that that's great. Not all of us are like that. But is there no place for emotions in the Christian faith since the Christianity is mainly, I believe, an intellectual religion? Go through the books of the Bible and name the ones that address the emotions. You probably come up with one right off the top of your head. What is it? Anybody have a suggestion? Psalms? Is Psalms an emotional book? Mm, I don't know. I could give you quite a few Psalms where they start off with this emotion. And then they come back and they say, but here's what the truth is. God is this, and God is that, and God has done this, and God has done that. Therefore, here is what my emotions should be, ought to be, and now are. So I believe that there's a place for emotions. But I don't believe it's in front of the horse. I believe it's behind the horse. The intellect is the horse, and the emotions follow the intellect. See, I think it's wrong for a pastor or a teacher or a music leader or a worship leader or anybody else to try and gin up emotions in people. My job is to address your intellect because I want to change the way you think. And I believe if I can change the way you think, I can change the way you live. And if your thinking is informed by biblical truth, then you're going to live differently than if your thinking is not informed by biblical truth. I could care less what your emotions are. But I believe that if you're, that the right emotions will come and they will follow an understanding of and a right use of the mind and the intellect. You see, it is when I understand the truth of who God is that you cannot get me off of my face in worship. But I can't gin up those emotions. It has to be the truth. So worship is us singing truth about God that we find in the Word of God. It is the people of God singing that to God as an expression of our emotions, but it is because it is founded and grounded in a love for the truth. So God is not opposed to the mind at all. Most of Scripture is addressed to the intellect, to the mind, to communicate truth and right doctrine and thus right practice. And the emotions, I believe, will naturally follow that. So can you see how important the mind is? Proverbs 23, 7, it's worth your memorizing. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now that verse does not mean that if you can just think better things about yourself, your life will be better. It's not what that's talking about. What does that mean? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What the proverb is saying is, the condition of your heart will inevitably bubble over and manifest itself in your life. Whatever is in your heart must inevitably come out. Because whatever it is that you think on, those are the things upon which you set your affections. Whatever it is that you think on is going to determine how you act, how you talk, how you walk, what you do. It will affect your priorities. It will affect your passions. All of your likes, all of your dislikes, all of your drives, all of your goals in life, everything will be determined by how you use your mind. All of it will be. As you think in your heart, as you practice in your mind, whatever it is you set your mind on, that is the thing you're going to worship. It is in our mind that we think about and assess and receive spiritual truth. It is in our mind that we think either rightly or wrongly about God, rightly or wrongly about His Word, or we either understand what is true or not true of us. It all begins in the mind. And friends, you have to control your mind. You must control your mind. 
You have to. Charles Spurgeon. He says, we ought to control our thoughts, for if they turn to be our enemies, they will be too many for us and will drag us down to ruin. That's a fact. You have to control your thoughts, because if they turn to be your enemies, you are toast. And you will either control them or they will control you. And every sin begins in the mind. Every sin begins in the mind. It is in the mind that desire conceives and it gives birth to sin. That starts in your intellect. That starts between your ears. It starts in how you use your gray matter all day long, every day. Again, to quote Spurgeon, because there's few people who are funner to quote. Spurgeon says, it is certain that thoughts are the eggs of sin. Thoughts are the eggs of words and actions. And within the thoughts lie compacted and condensed all the villainy of actual transgressions. Within your thoughts lie compacted and condensed all of the villainy of actual transgressions. You must control your mind. Either you control your mind or your mind will control you. Either your mind will be a slave to you and your will or you will serve your mind. And you do not want to serve your mind because it will run away and it will destroy you. It will drag you down to ruin. You must control your mind. It's essential. You've probably all heard the proverb, you sow a thought, you reap an act. You sow an act, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. You sow a character and you reap a destiny. Where does that all begin? In the mind. It's essential. Now you're sitting here and you may be objecting in one of two ways. Number one, you're saying, Jim, I can't control my mind. I can't control it. These things pop into my mind and I find that I'm being run away with. I'm being drugged down a road with my mind and I cannot control what comes into my mind. It's just there. It pops in. It's there. And I, I have to think on these things. Or second, you're saying to yourself, well, then, if we have to control our mind, does that mean that we will never sin in our minds? That no bad thought will ever enter into my mind? Let's answer those two. First, the idea that I cannot control my mind or my thinking because I'm a victim of my mind and my thoughts. We have a little saying around my house. It is, uh, I'm not saying it's necessarily inspired. I think it's biblical. I think everybody should memorize it and understand it and apply it as often as you can. And I want to train my kids so that they understand this truth because I believe it to be biblical. But I'm not necessarily, I can't quote chapter and verse on this. But my kids, like your kids, and probably like you and like me, find themselves, um, I hate to use the term victims because I hate that word, but find themselves possessed by certain thoughts. Sometimes demons, but most of them, no. Possessed by certain thoughts. Possessed by certain thoughts. So they'll come down, say 15 minutes, a half hour, 45 minutes after we put them to bed. Maybe your kids have done this too. They'll walk downstairs and they'll say, Mom, Dad, I'm thinking about such and such. and I have this in my mind and I'm worried about this. And what if this happens? And I, we saw this or they read about this and they can't stop thinking about this. It's going through their mind over, and I can't sleep. And so we say to them what every good parent would say. Stop thinking about it. Go back upstairs. Stop thinking about it and go to sleep. To which your child will respond. I can't stop thinking about it. And here's where we pull out the little saying that we have around our house. You determine what you think about. That's our proverb. You determine what you think about. And if you believe that you're a victim of your mind, you have believed a lie. You determine what you think about. So you can stop thinking about those things. You just have to determine and decide that I'm going to think about something else. Because you have to master your mind and you have to make your mind your slave. Because if you don't, your mind will enslave you. 
Show me somebody who disciplines their mind and has their mind in order and controls their mind, and I'll show you somebody who controls every aspect of their character, every aspect of their being. They'll control their emotions. They'll control their drives. They will control their passions. They will control their goals. They will control their priorities. But show me somebody who believes and practices all the time that their mind runs away with them and that they're a victim to their thoughts and a victim of their emotions. And I'll show you somebody whose whole life is total chaos. You have to control your mind. You determine what you think about. Nobody makes that choice for you. You make that choice of what you think about. I decide what I think about. I decide how I use my mind. And I can either think on right things or I can think on wrong things. I can choose to believe truth or I can choose to believe error. But I choose that. So then my choice. As a believer, no longer is my mind darkened. No longer is my understanding futile. No longer is my mind depraved and in bondage to the flesh and to sin. I've been set free from that and now my mind can glorify and honor God. But I choose, I choose what I think about. And so do you. So what about the second objection? The first being, I can't control it. Yes, you can. You determine what you think about. The second objection, does that mean then that I will never sin with my mind? Of course not. Of course you're going to sin with your mind. You've already sinned with your mind before you even walked in here this morning. You've sinned with your mind since I've been preaching. And you're going to sin with your mind before you... Yeah, I know you have. And you're going to sin with your mind before you leave here today. Of course you're going to sin with your mind. So what if a a wicked or wrong thought pops into my head? That doesn't necessarily mean that you're not controlling your mind. It doesn't mean that you're not honoring God with your intellect. Nor does it mean that you are not disciplining your mind to think on right things. You know what it means? When a wicked thought comes into your mind, you know what it means? It means that your mind needs to be renewed. And it needs to be made your slave and it needs to obey righteousness just like every other member of your body. And it means that you need to learn how to discipline your mind so that it obeys God and obeys His Word and reflects His character and His glory. That's all it means. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you're not controlling your mind. It doesn't mean you're not putting forth enough effort. It just means that you're carrying around with yourself still an unredeemed flesh. And that's going to be for the rest of your life. Spurgeon said, A thought may rise, but it must not reign. You understand the difference? A thought may rise, but it must not rain. I determine whether it rains or not. I may not be able to determine whether it comes into my mind, but I determine how much energy I give to it, how much effort I apply to it, and whether and how long I think on that thought. A thought may rise, but it must not rain. You have to control it. You have to discipline it. So, am I a victim of my thoughts? I determine what I think about Does it mean that I'll never sin with my mind? Does it mean I'll never sin in my thoughts? No, it doesn't mean that bad things will not come into my mind ever again. Even the most sanctified believer here who has the best control of their mind and their understanding, their intellect and how they think, even the most sanctified among us, if I were to take the thoughts that you've had this morning and put them up on a screen behind me, it would make us all blush. That's true. But it doesn't mean that you'll never sin with your mind. But you determine what you think about. Now, I want you to notice that Paul's instruction is positive. It's positive. Do you notice that he doesn't give us a list of what not to think about? We could read through the Bible and come up with all the wicked, immoral, unholy, unclean, unpure things, and we could make a list of them, and we could say to ourselves, don't think about these things. 
We could come up with all of the modern applications of that, modern illustrations of it from our culture, from our entertainment, from our music, and say, okay, I don't want you to think about any of these things. We could make our list. They could be a couple hundred items long. But Paul doesn't give us a list of things not to think about. What does he give us a list of? The things to think about. It's positive instruction. It's very difficult to be told not to think about something and then to actually not think about it. Right now, I want you to not think about a T-bone steak smothered in sautéed onions and mushrooms sitting next to a baked potato that is drenched with butter and sour cream and bacon bits. I want you to not think about that. Get that image of that delicious steak out of your mind right now. You're still thinking about it, aren't you? You're still thinking about it. you still got that image in your mind. Why? Because I told you not to think about something and your mind instantly thinks about it. It is much more profitable to say to you, I would like you to think about a steak. Beautiful, smothered in sautéed mushrooms and onions next to a baked potato that's drenched in butter and sour cream. Think on that. You're going to have no problem thinking about that. It is because I've given you positive instructions on how to use your mind. You can't just keep things out of your mind all the time. Don't lust. Don't lust. Don't lust. Don't lust. That'll never work. It can never work. Instead, the minute the lust comes up, you have to say to yourself, I'm going to think about this. And I'm going to put all of my mental energies and efforts on focusing on this thing. And pretty soon the lust is gone. The temptation is gone. So it's not a matter of just saying, I'm not going to think about this. You have to say, I'm going to think on these things. You see, your mind cannot be inactive. It can't be empty. It has to think on something. Your mind cannot think about nothing. And you say, Jim, have you met my teenage child? In all honesty, your mind cannot think about nothing. You can't simply create a vacuum. That's Paul's point. You have to determine, I'm going to fill it with these things. What are the these things? They are the things that are characterized or described by those six qualities of those two general headings that we saw in verse 8. And if you're observant, then you've already noticed we haven't even touched on the verse and we're already out of time. And you're absolutely right. We have and we are. So next Lord's Day, we're going to look at those six qualities and we're going to talk more about the application of this. You have to control your mind. You will either master it or it will master you. And you must either subject it to the Word and to those things that are holy or it will beat you into subjection. The choice is yours. You determine what you think about. Let's pray. Father, by Your grace, You have given us so much instruction in Your Word and how we are to use our minds. We pray, Father, that we would honor You through the use of our intellect and our understanding and our mind and what we think about. We know that sin first finds its expression in our minds. We pray, God, that You would give us the grace to capture those thoughts, to make them obedient, and to bring our thinking into submission. We want to live orderly and God-honoring lives in every element of our walk with You. We know it begins with our minds. We pray, God, that you'd give us the grace and may your peace, may your goodness, may your grace follow us this day and through the rest of this week. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.